Welcome to the Politically Incorrect Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Williams, the Washington Bureau Chief for News Talk Florida. And let me see if I can get this right this time. Last time, Joe got a little testy because I didn't get it right. So let me get it right this time. Get it on right. the left. Yes, sir. On the left, we have Joe Henderson. On the right, Tom Jackson. And our newest member of the team, Alan Steinberg, who is known throughout the New Jersey, New York area as one of the top political analysts and someone who you can watch on WWOR-TV from time to time and hear on a number of radio stations in the greater New York, New Jersey area, and someone who served with George W. Bush and Christy Todd Whitman. And of course, it's great to have Alan with us. And, you know, we've got a plethora of guys. It's a, we have a plethora of topics uh, that we can talk about, you know, but Joe, you were talking earlier when our pre-meeting about something that happened uh, in Florida this week with Donald Trump and how he was uh, appealing, to your surprise, to the evangelicals. And so why don't you uh, pick it up with that? So Joe Henderson. All right. Thanks. Um, yeah, Donald Trump, uh, appeared at a pastors in the pew meeting of evangelical leaders in Orlando. And according to Politico, uh, asked them to support him be, as, quote, maybe the only way I am getting into heaven. Um, okay, that's a funny line. I'll give him that. But what is not funny to me or, or doesn't make sense to me in the slightest is how the evangelical community, if you will, can wrap its arms around Donald Trump. He would seem to stand for the opposite of everything that an evangelical Christian stands for. And I don't get it. They can sit there and talk about Hillary Clinton this and Hillary Clinton that all they want. And you can pile up eight sins, if you will, for Donald Trump for everyone she has committed. And I don't get it. And my, my argument all along, and I wrote this uh, in the Tampa Tribune when it existed, is that Christian faith gets played as a political pawn every time one of these elections come up. And as a person of faith, and I am a life, you know, pretty much a lifelong United Methodist member, that infuriates me. I don't like anybody telling me that as a Christian, I have to politically believe in a certain way. And if I don't get courted by the candidate to speak directly to whatever values I have, then I, then I need to uh, support the other candidate. That is nonsense. Donald Trump uh, carrying the banner for Christian candidates? Give me a break. Tom Jackson, you, um, you were talking uh, again in the pre-meeting about uh, an article that you had read. Well, a while back, well, yeah, uh, Carlson there's going to be a guest on the show in the in the not too distant future. And what there, was it there are, said? There, there are there are two things that leave to mind. The first is that, um, yeah, I I am a little perplexed by the idea that a guy who is a a, a philanderer and a glutton and and greedy and has a, a number of personal sins going against him could be the choice of evangelical Christians. Um, but by the same token. Um, I, I think that Alan has, has made this point uh, earlier in our pre-meeting about the fact that evangelical Christians feel like this guy will stand up for them. Tucker Carlson made the same the same point 
some months ago when the when the nomination was still in doubt when the primaries were ver- were very early on and uh and and, there, and that that Donald Trump is a guy who evangelical Christians saw as somebody who would stick up for for their point of view who would defend their values and the virtues that that they treasure um just just by being the first guy to say yeah, and you know what in America when I'm president we're going to say merry christmas you know that's that's a silly throwaway line but it's part of the uh, it's part of what the evangelical community is convinced is, is under assault in America and if if there's a candidate who's going to stand up for for Merry Christmas, they're going to get behind him. Now, the other thing I would like to add to that is Joe's argument about how evangelical Christians should get their backs up about being taken for granted by either political party is exactly the same argument that I have that I've heard black conservatives made for years and years and years that the Democratic Party takes them for granted and does them no favors, and yet can count on them falling into line, can count, can count on the black vote falling into line every four years. And so I, I agree. I, I don't think that anybody's vote should be taken for granted. But if you're going to make that argument about evangelical Christians, then let's give some credence to black conservatives who say, you know what, the black community shouldn't be taken for granted either. Alan Steinberg, you were supporting Ted Cruz. And I thought, frankly, that Ted was going to be the guy who cornered the uh, evangelical market. What happened there? We all thought that, uh, Jim, but uh, what uh, both Joe and Thomas said is is accurate. Uh, Ted Cruz did not project the same sense of strength that Donald Trump did. And look, I'm one of the most anti-Donald Trump people in America, and it's a false sense of strength. He's not strong. He's a bully. Uh, But uh, nevertheless, the evangelicals were impressed by him as a protector, someone who would protect them from other interest groups and voting blocks. I noticed something, and I'm a very pro-evangelical person. As an Orthodox uh, Jew, as a very committed Zionist, I've long favored uh, that, for example, that my Jewish community, uh, a lot of which uh, is somewhat suspicious of uh, the evangelical agenda, that we have more uh, contact and, and also, you know, more political discourse. But I've noticed an evolution in the evangelical community uh, politically. In the 1976 election, the evangelicals were with Jimmy Carter because he was a person who practiced the same evangelical lifestyle. There wasn't any question about it. Uh, then when, when Ronald Reagan came around, when Jerry Falwell formed a moral majority, Jerry Falwell was politically very conservative. And for Ronald Reagan, it was often said, and I'm a Reagan fan, but he wasn't exactly the evangelical lifestyle either. Uh, he had a committed marriage to Nancy, but he was a real Hollywood guy. But Someone once said about Reagan and the evangelicals, it was like he bought a new product line. In the case of Donald Trump, the evangelicals <laughs> by the, the time <laughs> I like yeah, that was a good line. I do like of, that. Uh, I like that a lot. But, that, but that's what was said. I, you know, and I think it was true with Reagan. You know, for example, he uh, brought the whole idea that he was going to support the evangelicals on uh, the right to life, anti-abortion. He didn't do a thing on that the whole time he was in office. He didn't really care, you know, but. Uh, by the time Trump came along, in this election, uh, the evangelicals are, are very concerned. The cultural divide in this country is very severe. And uh, I think Trump is a charlatan, but he played it perfectly. Uh, and he, without evangelicals, uh, that's one of his core voting blocks. He's going to lose this election, but 
uh, he needs them to even have a base. You're listening to the Politically Incorrect podcast. I'm Jim Williams, Washington Bureau Chief for News Talk Florida. You know, Tom, you had made a point about black conservatives, and I, um, I've had a couple of conversations recently with a number of uh, black groups and organizations, and one of the complaints that, that they have is that they do not see Republicans come into their neighborhoods and even attempt to recruit them as potential voters for the party or or even backing their candidates. And I think perhaps part of the problem is that maybe the Republicans look at the, the Black community as and concede them to uh, to the Democrats without even an attempt. Yeah, it's it's a it's a self fulfilling prophecy uh, that Republicans think they can't get the urban black vote, and so they don't pursue it. And so and and uh, the the urban black community sees the fact that Republicans don't come to town, and so they don't vote for them. I mean, uh, Paul Ryan made an impassioned plea in 2012 to be allowed to barnstorm the inner cities. And the Romney campaign said, no, you're, you're better off being other places. I mean, so the, the party that once upon a time at least had a dalliance with, with Jack Kemp politics, the idea that, that, we could, that, that conservative politics and conservative policies could bootstrap these communities and actually breed a new, uh, a, a new class of Republican voter is just not something that's even considered anymore, as near as I can tell. Uh, and and it's, it, it plays itself out in local politics all the way up to all the way up to the top of the rung. And it's 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 always disappointing to me to, to see the way that plays out. I talked to Michael Steele about it, and Michael was telling me that he made a valid attempt at trying to get some of the uh, even some of the senatorial candidates to come into the uh into the inner city in Baltimore and in some of the more um, what you would automatically think to be considered straight up democratic uh, areas. And he was, there was a great deal of pushback against. Well, you know, I can tell you from my, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, Alan, you have more expertise on this than I do. Well, I I have experience with this issue and uh, I, I think when Republicans have made a legitimate attempt, they've had, far more success than people would believe. For example, Tom Kane in New Jersey, he really made an effort to outreach in the African-American community. But there were two reasons he was successful. African-Americans felt Kane was very sincere. He won over 50% of the African-American vote when he ran for re-election in 1985. Uh, But the second thing was that Kane had around him African-Americans like Lenny Coleman, who uh, ended up uh, later became the president of baseball in the National League. I worked with Lenny on a memorial to Jackie Robinson. He had people who were authentic uh, personages in the African-American community, and they helped King get there. I think that Republicans have given up on this, and I think it's unfortunate. Uh, we had people like Jack Kemp for years. Newt Gingrich was a strong advocate of outreach into the uh, African-American community. But somewhere along the line, it's been abandoned, and it's unfortunate, and it's reflected in the polls where it showed Donald Trump getting a big, fat 1% of the African-American community. I think this abandonment is very unfortunate. That's 1% with a, uh, with a, with a, 
a margin of error of about 4% from the poll that I saw. So it's possible that he's negative 3% in the black community. So <laughs> something, something to think about. Uh, Alan, Alan, what's, what's the chance? Uh, I mean, you, you have been, you have been in uh, GOP politics for a while. What's the chance that Republican candidates are being steered away from the black community because there is a perception that by doing uh, outreach to black communities, you will push away a certain segment of the Republican voting bloc that is white and is suspicious of black voter outreach? Well, it all depends what area of the country. For example, I'm hopeful as to one thing. You have a guy, uh, an outstanding individual like Kim Scott, senator from South Carolina, a conservative African American, who I think someday may be considered. I, I think someday he may be considered for president. I think down south, actually, this shows how history changes. The developments in history change things. I think Republican outreach to the African American community has uh, had much more success than uh, people would believe. Uh, the Democrats, uh, actually, by contrast, they're not interfacing as, as well as they used to with the uh, white community. But I think Republicans have a real good chance of outreach there. Uh, New Jersey, it doesn't seem to have been on uh, Chris Christie's radar screen. He's got a big scandal on his radar screen now. But I would not, for all my criticism of Chris Christie, I would not call him anti-black. He did have African-Americans in his cabinet. And uh, he didn't do that badly. But it all depends where. Uh, I think some areas of the country, I, I think also Mitt Romney, and he was not a big, but his campaign people had this perception that it was a fruitless endeavor. Uh, I don't think that uh, the uh, Romney campaign uh, really gave this the effort they should have. Well, you're listening to the Politically Incorrect podcast. I'm Jim Williams, your host, the Washington Bureau Chief of News Talk Florida. Joe Henderson, Alan Steinberg, Tom Jackson are our panelists. That was Alan Steinberg, who was just chatting. Joe Henderson, um, Tom Jackson, guys, Hispanic vote. Clearly, there's a disconnect there. And in the old days, Republican, very strong down in uh, Dade County among the Cuban community. Is the Cuban community going to deliver for Trump? What's your feeling, what you're hearing from down south, a part of uh, the state of Florida, with regard to the Cuban community, which has been traditionally strong for um, Republicans? They were for Jeb Bush. They were for Marco Rubio. Are they going to be for Donald Trump? Well, I don't think so, um, because here's here's the problem in general um, that I see with with the whole Republican approach is it is seen by a lot of different groups as unless you're a white male, basically you are being singled out as someone to be feared, so, uh, someone to be uh, fought against, if you will. Uh, and that's been Trump's whole message all along. Uh, and it's, it's starting to really come home to roost, so to speak, um, when when you start to see numbers like the you know, Hispanic vote going against him uh, and the 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 African American vote going against him, so I don't really see any reason why the Cuban vote would be any different this time. It it's 
uh, or any different from from that trend. It's you've got a lot of. Uh, you know, I know the feelings uh, in certain parts of the Cuban, uh, the Cuban community are very very strong against uh, the Obama outreach to uh, normalize relations. But I don't think that's unanimous by any stretch of the imagination. There's a lot of Cuban people here uh, in Florida, and particularly in, in the Tampa area, who say enough's enough. Let's let's normalize relations. Let's reach out. Let's end the embargo. So I don't, uh, you know, I'm not seeing uh, Trump having a whole lot of, uh, you know, uh, making a whole lot of headway there. Tom, what what do you think? Well, I I think that the demographic of of uh, Cuban voter in the Miami Dade area that um, has been reliably Republican is dying off. I mean that that generation of Cubans who came to the states uh, during the during the rebellion, the revolution, um, are are who those who are still there are still staunch Republican voters, and I think that they are, can be counted on to support Donald Trump. But there's just not that many of them anymore, and and I think Joe makes a fair point that the the subsequent generations and especially the younger Cubans who live throughout Florida now are are thinking yeah maybe maybe enough is enough maybe it's time for some reconciliation now I will point out that since normalization has begun to happen between the White House and Havana that uh dissidents are reporting that they have been cracked on cracked down on like nobody's business and that the the normalization uh from the White House seems to have given a green light to the Castro regime to to really punish uh, political dissent. So you got that going for you. Uh, conservatives and, and, and moderate Republicans, I don't know where Marco Rubio is anymore on this, but uh, on that scale, but Marco Rubio has said, if you, if you start to normalize, as long as the Castro's around, they're going to crack down and it's going to be bad for dissent, and that's exactly what's happened. I'm Jim Wood, of the Politically Incorrect podcast, um, News Talk Florida, and you can also listen to us on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to take a break right now, and we're going to come back, and when we come back, we'll talk, of course, to Alan Steinberg, Joe Henderson, Tom Jackson, our panel. So after these short break, we shall return on the Politically Incorrect podcast. You are listening to Newstalkflorida.com and blogtalkradio.com. Welcome back to the Politically Incorrect Podcast. I'm Jim Williams, your host and the Washington Bureau Chief for News Talk Florida. Our guests and our panel, Joe Henderson, Alan Steinberg, and Tom Jackson. Just before we went to break, Alan, you were about to talk about something having to do with the Hispanic vote, and uh, go ahead, pick it up. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, Joe and Tom, it's interesting. I have sources. uh, You're there, and I'm here, so anything I'm saying is uh, largely secondhand. But I have sources through the uh, two major constituencies, Hispanic constituencies in New Jersey, uh, the Puerto Rican constituency and the Cuban constituency, which totally backs you up. Uh, it's interesting. For years in New Jersey, the Cuban community was Democratic because uh, most of the Cuban exiles came into uh, Hudson County, which was a Democratic county. And so if they had joined the Republican Party, they would have been out of it. And down in Florida, the Cuban community was Republican. However, what I'm hearing through Cuban sources 
is that the Cuban community this time is likely to vote for uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, largely due to what you alluded to, a generational change. But there's another thing I'm hearing about Florida. Florida's had a significant increase in Puerto Rican uh, immigrants. Uh, a lot of that is due to the uh, chaotic situation with finances in Puerto Rico, and Republicans are being blamed that an aid package in terms of the bonds and everything else was delayed so long in the Congress. Uh, Puerto Ricans who come into the United States, and I've worked extensively with Puerto Rico, uh, the Commonwealth, when I was at EPA, uh, they tend to vote Democratic. So I think the Hispanic vote, it's a mistake, as all of you know, to consider Hispanics a monolith. There are different Hispanic communities. But both the Puerto Rican community and the Cuban community, I think, in this election, from what I'm seeing, and I'll defer to both of you, are going to be much more for Hillary Clinton than uh, for uh, Donald Trump. And I think that may be a decisive factor in her winning the state of Florida. You know, Alan, there's something uh, that I wanted to ask you. One of the key demographics that got flipped this cycle, at least thus far, is white educated people. And that is, of course, right in your wheelhouse there in southern Jersey in the Philly suburbs. And then, of course, in our old stomping grounds in western Pennsylvania. As James Carvel used to say about Pennsylvania, it's Philadelphia on one end, it's Pittsburgh on the other, and it's Alabama in the middle. Um, basically, what are your thoughts? What are you hearing from the Philly suburbs? And is that uh, situation with the changing of the white educated um, soccer moms and dads in the, in the uh, in that part of uh, Jersey and in the Philly area, truly making a, a change. You put your finger right on it, Tom. I mean, uh, Jim, you, you put your finger right on it, Jim. I'll tell you why. Uh, white working class individuals without college degrees are tend to be very much pro Donald Trump. That's how he won a lot of these primaries. But white college educated reject Trump overwhelmingly. If you look at the Franklin and Marshall poll, in that poll, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, which were won by, Mitt Rom by uh, Barack Obama by 9% in 2012 against Mitt Romney, the poll shows right now Hillary Clinton ahead of Donald Trump by 40%, 60 to 20. Now, there is no way that a Republican is going to win the state of Pennsylvania with white college-educated individuals voting against uh, him or her by a margin like that. Pennsylvania, Jim, when you and I were growing up, uh, you had Pittsburgh, uh, Allegheny County, and Philadelphia County. 1960, when you and I were uh, first getting into politics, in 1960, in our, in our childhood, I remember Bill Green, who was the Democratic boss of Philadelphia. He was the party leader. Dick Dilworth was the mayor. Bill Green said on the eve of the election, I'll get Kennedy a margin of at least 300,000. He needed 250,000 to win the state. He got 325,000. That's how John F. Kennedy won Pennsylvania. And those suburbs back then were Republican suburbs. They no longer are because they're white, college-educated people. Uh, now, in western Pennsylvania, the only strength Trump has, he's not strong in the city of Pittsburgh, but he is strong in a number of those communities. Uh, Jim, you and I know those communities. They were mm -hmm. once steel companies. They were once coal-producing areas. Right. Ambridge, Aliquippa, New Kensington, where I grew up. These are uh, basically a lot of storefronts right now. They're communities that have shut down. 
Donald Trump is promising these people he'll bring back the steel industry. Well, the steel industry has gone. All these heavy industries have gone. It's a false hope that he's uh, putting out. Uh, but the, the Democrats, Hillary Clinton, the Clinton-Cain ticket, is going to win Pennsylvania. And the significance of that is this. I did a election, uh, electoral college scenario about a month ago. I gave Hillary Clinton a base of 236 electoral votes, uh, Donald Trump 191, because Pennsylvania, their 20 is now, it was a swing state. It's not going to be for Hillary. Virginia with Tim Kaine is now going to be for Hillary with their 13. And New Hampshire, where Hillary is ahead by 15 points, uh, that is a total of an additional uh, 38 electoral votes. And Hillary Clinton is going to win the presidency unless there's some cataclysmic event that happens. And it's all due to Pennsylvania, Virginia, New Hampshire, and her base. This week, we had a situation where Paul Ryan was reelected. He is, of course, the Speaker of the House. He's number three in line to uh, the presidency, the most powerful member of the GOP party. You know, I've asked you guys this a couple of times, and I'm talking, of course, to Alan Steinberg and to to Tom Jackson, who are are very learned men on the Republican side. Who comes out of this if it is a whitewash? If it really becomes a uh, a big time loss, who comes out of this? Does Paul Ryan? I mean, right now, Paul Ryan's trying to hold the party together. Tom. Jackson, you said a, about a week ago that you figured two weeks from now, if it didn't look like, you know, if if the tide continued against Trump, that the the GOP just might cut loose and and actually, to quote uh, uh, a story from Politico this afternoon, they were talking about they're literally the Republican Party at this moment is looking at their polling problems. And if the polling problems continues to to go against them, they are going to consider pulling some of that money away from the presidential campaign and put it into some seriously close senatorial races. So what happens to the party after this, um, after this election? We'll go to Tom Jackson here on the political the uh, Politically Incorrect podcast, and and I'll let Alan finish it up. Tom? God knows what is going to happen to the to the Republican Party. I, I, I saw that story that you were referring to. There's a letter being circulated. already has uh, names of about 70 uh, fairly heavy-duty GOP operatives saying, telling Ryan Priebus that he needs to just uh, cut Donald Trump loose. Um, not spend any more money on his campaign and focus it on down uh, on the down ballot races. I think that what will be critical about what happens with the GOP uh, after November 9th is what sort of shape the Republicans are on Capitol Hill. If they have retained their House of Representatives majority and are not whitewashed in the Senate then I think reasonable heads will prevail and they will prepare for a, a, a post-Donald Trump cobbling back together of the coalition that, that they once had. Uh, if, there's a, if there's an absolute wipeout, I can't begin to tell you. I, I think that there will be uh, fear and recrimination and anger, and it, hopefully it will result in, down the line, 
uh, a realization that the that the Democrats came to after after George McGovern, and that is that, and I guess again after Walter Mondale, is that winning is everything. That you can have all of the ideal, you can pursue all of the ideological purity that you want, but if you aren't in power to to act on it, then you're just whistling Dixie. Uh, so, I, I, again, I think it all comes down to what they're left with on November 9th, um, assuming a, a big loss, a, a, a four or five or six point loss uh, by Donald Trump. Alan? Uh, let, me, let me go along with Tom completely. Uh, Tom hit it uh, the nail right in the head, but I'll take it one step further. I'm usually a guy that loves to predict things. I can't predict what's going to happen after the election, but I have a pretty good handle as to what I think will happen during the election. Republicans are in real danger of losing the Senate. There are three races I think that uh, I think the probability is extremely high they're going to lose. They're going to lose in uh, Illinois. Mark Kirk is a great guy, but he's going to lose. Uh, they're going to lose in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, Russ Feingold is back. I think Ron Johnson is going to be defeated. And they're likely to lose a seat that they were headed for victory in in Indiana because Evan Bayh is running. He's a, the Bayh name is very popular in Indiana, and I think Evan Bayh is going to win. So that gives him three seats right away. Right now in New Hampshire, Kelly Ayotte is down by 10 points, and she's running against a very popular uh, incumbent governor in Maggie Hassan, who is seeking the Senate seat. So uh, Republicans are at real risk of losing that seat. Now, in terms of the House of Representatives, they're likely to uh, keep it, except uh, if the generic margin, right now the generic polling shows that Democrats nationwide have an edge of 4% in terms of uh, whether the electorate wants a Democratic or Republican Congress. Now, as you know, the way the districts are set up, it's not going to happen just because it's a generic ballot. But if the generic ballot goes up to 6% gap, there's a lot of seats. Uh, Republican seats that are normally considered uh, like, uh, you know, leaning Republican, they may go the other way. We could, and if there's a wipeout of Donald Trump, we could get a Republican House as well. It's more than likely we'd have Republican uh, House and a Democratic Senate. But the leadership in uh, the uh, Republican congressional leadership is going to have a very large role in the future of the party. And if the party just can't get a sense of direction, I'm going to tell you something I think is possible. I think we may have a third party uh, that emerges. Uh, Maybe the Republicans are going to go the way of the Whigs in the 1850s. Look for one person as a key focus. He's a very bright ideologue, and that's uh, Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska. As far as Paul Ryan goes, I love the guy. I think he's a great guy. He's a great policy wonk. He's not that effective of a politician. He would be a better president than he is a House Speaker because as a president, he could have someone deal with the political matters. But I don't think he's that effective in terms of congressional politics. He doesn't seem to be able to uh, reach consensus that effectively. Alan, uh, with regard to Ben Sass, do you uh, you feel he would be the guy picking up the mantle? What would that mean with the Freedom uh, Caucus and the third from the standpoint of the third party aspect, who would be who would break off? You know, where would where would the split be in the Republican Party, and where would the the third party come from? Would it come out of the uh, Freedom Caucus, or would it come out of traditional Republicans, or where would it come from? It may come out of the traditional Republicans, actually. Uh, you know, you would normally think the Freedom Caucus might be the base, uh, but a lot of people like me who are conservative—I'm an old Milton Friedman conservative. 
I get frustrated with the Freedom Caucus because they don't realize that you do have to compromise. You do have to achieve consensus. And, uh, you know, you can't govern just by sticking your head in the sand. I'm not that high on the Freedom Caucus, guys. And, uh, you know, I hear Republicans who are moderate saying there's no place for us anymore. I know how I feel. Uh, you know, the Republican Party was the great opportunity society of Ronald Reagan, Jack Kemp, Finn Weber. Now it's just a party of cultural resentment. I watched the convention on TV from Cleveland. I'd been to five conventions before. And I said, boy, am I glad I'm not there. I couldn't, I, I couldn't stand watching it. And uh, I think that uh, you may have centrist Republicans saying, hey, we don't want to become Democrats. We don't like the kind of judicial appointments Hillary Clinton makes. We don't like the kind of uh, big government programs, particularly because we're going to have a health care crisis next year with the collapse of Obamacare. So you may have centrist Republicans who start to think, hey, uh, we need to go the, let the Republicans go the way of the Whigs, and we need a new party. I'm not saying that'll happen, but that's a possibility. You're listening to the Politically Incorrect podcast. I'm Jim Williams, the Washington Bureau Chief of News Talk Florida. And with us, you just heard Alan Steinberg. Before that, you heard uh, Tom Jackson. And now, Mr. Henderson, question for hey, you. Hey, I'm here. I know you are, President and Counselor. <laughs> Uh, he's doing he's doing his Ben Carson impersonation. Right, yes, I am, and doing a darn good <laughs> job of it. Um, ben, or I'm sorry, uh, Joe. The let's let's assume for the moment that the Republicans lose and and Hillary Clinton wins. Do you see Bernie Sanders playing a part in any aspect of a Clinton administration, or do you see Bernie? taking that role that he had and that movement that he had and either trying to expand the Democratic Party or perhaps, as Alan was talking about, a third party, could there be a spinoff of a fourth party? Uh, I don't see him having much of a role um, in, a, in a Clinton administration. <clears throat> I think um, once the election is over and, and she begins to govern, that she will run away, run away, run away from a lot of those uh, far-left positions that Bernie drove her to uh, in the campaign. And as far as uh, Bernie trying to, to set off a new, you know, a new party or a, a new movement, I don't see that happening either. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. He just bought a, a nice, expensive, uh, I think it was $500-plus-thousand-dollar vacation home, and his Staunchest supporters are killing him on the internet over it. They're, you know, they can't believe that he's that he sold them out like this by actually having a nice, you know, house. So, no, I don't see him wanting to do that going forward. What I what I do see is that uh, as this race barrels toward a conclusion in November and then immediately afterward, I see Hillary Clinton totally focusing on. You know her agenda, what she wants to do for the future, and I think uh, Alan made a great point about the uh, the, health, the looming health care crisis, if you will, for next year because that is going to be an issue. And Obamacare, while I agree with the general concept that health care is a right, not a privilege. Sorry, Tom, but that's how I feel. Um, it's but it's got to be it's got to be better than this. This is what we've had is is a loggerheads in the 
you know, six or seven years since we've had uh, this thing. The, the, the next Congress and the, uh, under Hillary's leadership is going to need to unite behind something that works for everybody that doesn't bankrupt the system, doesn't lead to the kind of uh, spikes in premiums that we've seen, and uh, that allows you, and I'm going to say this, to keep your doctor if you like your doctor. Okay. You know, there's a healthcare development that uh, is very interesting, and this is where Republicans are way, uh, missing the boat. All we're going to do is talk about tax cuts all the time. Uh, you know, the people are. It's like the old song. It seems like I've heard that song before. We, healthcare is an area where the Republicans could really be creative. A lot of what's happening in the, where Jim and I grew up in Pittsburgh, they've gone through a whole new healthcare system uh, where you really are changing from employer-based insurance policies. Uh, over to captive insurance policies that hospitals have, and doctors are joining networks uh, run by the hospitals, and the hospitals compete for doctors, which enables doctors to make more money, and a lot of doctors now full-time employees at the hospitals. Uh, now, some doctors don't want that. Others like it because the hospitals pick up their malpractice insurance. But given this change of, in health care, which is not driven by government, it's driven by self-interest economic concerns, this is where Republicans ought to be creative and say, hey, well, it's a changing environment. Uh, Health care is now an economic uh, investment opportunity. This is what we ought to do. But I don't hear Republicans talking about this. I hear them talking about all the social issues. I hear them talking about immigration to an extent that it's making me sick because I don't think illegal immigrants are the cause of our economic woes. I mean, I do, do want legal immigration. I do want border control. But uh, I think health care is something the Republicans ought to get into. If we want to have a future. Well, I'll tell you what. Back in um, 1968, from 1968 to 1972, there was dueling health care bills, one that Richard Nixon had and one that Ted Kennedy had. And we came very close on a couple of occasions in the late 60s and early 70s to actually having uh, the universal health care that uh, a lot of people, you know, are looking forward to. And uh, on his deathbed at Sibley Hospital in Washington, D.C., Ted Kennedy made the confession that he said that the one thing that he regretted, among others, was that he never sat down with Richard Nixon and cobbled out a universal health care, because at that point it would have been done in 1972. And uh, so we'll talk about healthcare on another edition, but we're coming close to the end, guys, of the Politically Incorrect podcast. And uh, time for final call. And um, let's start with Tom Jackson. Tom, you're up on final call. Some final thoughts from you we, today. We have conspicuously avoided discussion of the discovery of 44 emails from the trove of, uh, of Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State that seems to indicate pretty strongly that she was uh, operating on a operating a pay-for-play uh, access system while she was Secretary of State. That was that, that also strongly involved uh, the the Clinton Foundation. And in any other year, if or if this was a year that uh, Republicans had, had nominated somebody who was a sensible candidate for president, I think that this would be the straw that broke the Democrat nominees back. Uh, this is this is clearly 
bordering on fraudulent. The, the FBI wanted to conduct an, uh, an investigation into this months ago, and it was quashed by the Justice Department. I mean, this just stinks to high heaven, and Hillary's going to get to skate because the, because the Republican nominee is so awful. Alan? Uh, what, I want to relate to what, uh, uh, that, what Tom just said about the Clinton Foundation. Uh, there is a story there that would make a fertile field for investigation. The New York Times did an article about the whole uranium deal uh, that the uh, Clinton Foundation worked in Russia. And I don't know why the, Dem- the Republicans don't go after that. I think that they, what these emails have rebuilt may be uh, pay to play, although it's not as clear cut. But it's not going to involve anything criminal, and it's not going to involve a very serious ethics charge. Uh, So I think while the Republicans could go after that, while Trump could go after the Clinton Foundation effectively, I don't think these emails are going to do it. And I think that he has become such a ghastly figure to Americans. And what he said about uh, Obama being the founder of ISIS, that was more of an encouragement to violence than the uh, whole Second Amendment thing he said the other day. I think that uh, that allegation is going to destroy him. Joseph, you're up. Well, there was a, a new poll. We were talking about Senate races earlier, and there's a, a new Quinnipiac poll uh, that shows Marco Rubio may be in trouble in Florida. Um, his, his lead over Patrick Murphy, who still has to win his primary but will, um, has slipped to three points, and that is within the statistical margin for error. So essentially that race is a dead heat. Marco had a, anywhere from a 7 to a 10-point lead after he reentered the race in June. But the uh, Murphy camp has been blanketing the airwaves with a lot of ads, uh, direct appeals from President Obama to support Patrick Murphy, and it looks like it might be having an impact. And Florida is a state the Republicans definitely uh, can't afford to give up a Senate seat here if they hope to maintain their uh, margin, if they have any hope at all. All right, right, guys. Social media time. Tom Jackson, tell us where we can find you. You can find me on Facebook. Um, where would that be? That is Tom Jackson, journalist, entrepreneur. My Twitter handle is at Thomas Jacks Tampa. That's T-H-O-M-A-S-J-A-X Tampa. Mr. Steinberg, where can we find my, you? My Facebook site is uh, Alan Joel Steinberg. I use the middle name my mommy and daddy gave me. Uh, my Twitter handle is at a Steinberg 613. I'll tell you the significance of 613. That is the number of biblical commandments in Judaism. And uh, I don't observe them all, but I try. <laughs> Good enough. Mr. Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at the initial J, Henderson, Tampa, T-A-M-P-A. And you can find me on Facebook uh, at uh, Joe Henderson, commentary, columns, and such. Well, you can find me, Jim Williams, on Twitter at N-T-F-L-A underscore politics. That's N-T-F-L-A underscore politics. You can find all of us and our writings at NewstalkFlorida.com. And you've been listening to the Politically Incorrect Podcast with Joe Henderson, Alan Steinberg, and Tom Jackson. We look forward to our next one coming up soon. 
by all means, we'd love to have you uh, give us some feedback. Leave us uh, a note on either one of these three gentlemen's Facebook pages, or you can leave one on the News Talk Florida Facebook page, or you know, hit us up on Twitter with some questions that you might have for us. Again, the Politically Incorrect podcast can be gotten on NewstalkFlorida.com. You can find us on BlogTalkRadio.com. You can find us in the iTunes store or in Google Play. So no excuse not to find the Politically Incorrect podcast and to subscribe to it. We've enjoyed chatting with you today. Thanks very much for being with us. And until next time, have a good week. 